Good morning. Yeah. Well, my name is Brandon. I am the pastor of Preaching and Vision here at Sojourn Heights, and I've been out the last three weeks, and it is exciting to be back uh, with the scriptures opening up this morning. We've been in the middle of a, been in a series, we're not in the middle of it anymore, a series on holiness. Uh, this is the last week of our series. We started out talking about God's holiness, uh, which we defined as his complete otherness. And then we talked about our holiness. Uh, and then last week we talked about holiness and mission. Uh, and this week we're going to connect some dots between hope and holiness. So let's get started. There's an article uh, in The Guardian titled The Necessity of Hope. It was written by Stan Van Hooft, a, uh, an Australian professor of philosophy. And inside his article, this is, uh, this is what he said. We live in a time where earthquakes and tsunamis that devastate entire populations. Political unrest has toppled governments in the Middle East. The global financial crisis continues to unsettle financial institutions around the world. The global warming and global not the global warming, but global warming threatens to, to disrupt the livelihoods and cultures of millions around the world. Yet it would seem, yet it would seem that in order to act purposefully in our time, we need to be motivated by hope. And so here's Stan Van Hoof's observation. He, he looks out at the world, and effectively, he just says, the world is crashing down, right? No matter where you look, the world's crashing down. Earthquake, tsunami, Middle East, you name it, the world is crashing down. And in the middle of that, he says, we need to be motivated by hope. And here, here's my question to Stan. Why? Why? Like, you, you've just looked out at the world, Stan Van Hooft, and you said, there is, I think I said that right, Stan Van Hooft, and you, you have said, there is nothing to hope in. And yet, we need to be motivated by hope. Why, Stan? Why? He gives us an answer. <laughs> I, I thought that was funny. Um, here's his answer. Unless we believe that a better day, that a better future can be created, we lack the impetus to seek the betterment of our lives and those of others. Unless we believe a better day, a better future can be created, we lack the impetus to pursue a better day, a better life for ourselves and that of others. Here is his observation. If I could just summarize Stan, this is what he's trying to say, I believe. Even in the midst of a world that he looks at and says is completely crashing down, even in a world where he looks at it and says there is nothing worth hoping in, he, he still knows this, that what we hope in tomorrow impacts how we live today. What we hope in tomorrow impacts how we live today. And, and here's what the Bible is going to say to Stan. The Bible is actually going to say to Stan, you are absolutely right. Absolutely right. That what we hope in tomorrow impacts how we live today. But the Bible is actually going to go a step farther. It's going to take it another step. And it's going to say what we hope in tomorrow impacts who we are today. The Bible is going to go a step farther from just how we live today to who we are today. Or to say it another way, to try to summarize what Peter is about to say to us, hope impacts holiness. Let's get to it. Verse 13, therefore, 1 Peter 1, 13. 
Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be re- that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so here, here's the thing in this text, the set your hope fully, that, that is the imperative of this text, right? So the imperative, the, hey, you must do this is right here. And it's right here. It's not, well, I'll get to that in a minute, but the, the imperative of our text today is you must set your hope fully. This is the do this. This is the do this that throughout the this series, we've talked about holiness, and we've repeatedly said it's, it's be this. It's, it's about being, not about doing. And here in this text, the text says there is a doing to do, and it's set your hope fully on the revelation of Jesus Christ. And, and here's, here's a question for, for Peter. Why fully? Right? He could have just as easily made his point by saying, hey, set your hope on the grace that will be revealed. Why, why the word fully in there? I think this is what Peter knows. Peter, Peter knows uh, that what we hope in most governs how we live our lives. What we hope in most governs how we live our lives. This is, um, if we just take a couple of examples, this is really obvious. If you hope most in success, it's going to determine how you live your life today. If the thing that you want most is success, it's going to determine how you live today. Or, or another one, if you, if you want most to be married, right? So not, if you're in here and you're not married, and, and the, the thing that you hope in the most is to become married, it will determine how you, it'll determine how you view church, it'll determine how you view work, you name it, it will impact how you live there. What you hope in most will govern how you live your life today. And Peter is saying that the governing hope of your life has to be grace at the revelation of Jesus. And so let me define grace here because I don't want us to, don't want us to misunderstand what the, what the Bible is saying, what Peter is trying to say, uh, that throughout the Scriptures, the Scriptures are going to define grace in the person and work of Jesus. What Christ has done for us is going to be the biblical definition of what grace is. And Peter is saying that grace will appear when Christ returns, that grace is a man, that grace is a man, grace is Christ. And he wants this, this appearing of him to be the governing hope of our life. And this runs counter to who we are, right? It runs counter to the Western cultural air that we breathe. Let me give you an example. How how many of us as kids heard this? You, you can be anything you want if you just put your mind to it. Who heard that? Hands in the air. Hands in the air. Let's Come on. I, put all your hands in the air. Stop lying to me. Hands up. Okay, it's a lie. It's an absolute lie. You cannot be anything you want to be if you just put your mind to it. I put my mind to football, and I'm right here. <laughs> it's not okay, and I'm not over it. All right, one day, I'm just kidding. I'm kind of over it. I'm getting there slowly. I'm in recovery. It's a long process. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Um, but here's what's underneath that statement. Here's what, that, that cultural air, underneath that statement is this. If you have a strong enough hope in yourself, you can do anything you want. Hope sits underneath that statement. Hope sits underneath that statement. If you have a strong enough hope in yourself, 
You can do anything you want to do. And Peter is saying, absolutely no, that is not true. That the governing hope of your life has to be. It has to be grace, not you. It has to be Jesus, not you. And it has to be in the day that he would return, not today. And let me explain. Peter's writing to people who, uh, some were suffering, some were about to suffer. Much like this room right now. And on the surface, if if I'm just honest with you, on the surface, this advice seems a little impractical. Hey, you, you people who are suffering or about to suffer, here's what you need to do. You need to think about something that's going to happen one day and we don't know when. It seems a little impractical, but let me tell you why it's not practical. Let me back up. Let me tell you why it's not impractical. What Peter wants for these men and women is what he wants for us. He wants what's most important to us today to still be important to us in 10,000 years. It is the most practical thing you could ever do. To hope in something that will still be worth hoping in in 10,000 years is the most practical thing you could ever do. And so here's Peter's angst. Here's his heart. Here's his hope that the governing hope of your life, the governing hope of my life, would be the day when Jesus returns, when grace appears and Christ returns. Because Peter knows this. There is no holiness without hope. Listen, every, and we are exceptional at looking holy. And when that holiness is motivated by something that's not hope in the return of Christ, it is simply morality. P- Peter knows this. There is no holiness not rooted in hope. And hope impacts holiness. Let's keep reading. Verse 14, as obedient children... As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. That little phrase, former ignorance, your former ignorance is so profoundly encouraging to me. Because have you ever noticed when you read the Bible, every time you're called to holiness, it, it's never on its own? It's always with a reminder that you're not who you were. You are never called to just go do something. You're always reminded you're not who you were. You're a new man. You're a new woman. When you're in Christ, you have a new life. You have a former life. And that former life is not your life today. Now, the reality is we've brought a lot of that life in with us, and we continue to bring it in with us. And God continues to purge the old life from us. But there's always a reminder. It's never naked. It comes along with a reminder that you're not who you were. You're not who you were. And then there's something else in this text that is is also um, encouraging, discouraging. I don't really know what on this one, but that, that phrase, you also be holy. Be holy. Would it surprise you if I told you that it's passive? That it's passive? It's it's not uh, you go and do this, but it's, hey, you, you go and you do this, but it has to happen to you. This is holiness can't be forced. Holiness can't be um, forced. It has to happen to you. How, how many of us in this room have ever, uh, I think this will be evidence, how many of you have ever lied 
Uh, let's do another hands. How many of you ever lied? There we go. Uh, and then thought, you know what, I really shouldn't do that. I really shouldn't lie. But then you lied again after you thought that and thought I shouldn't lie again. Yeah, that's all of us. All right, if you don't put your hand in there, you're lying right now, okay? <laughs> all right, or, um, or maybe one that feels more spiritual. How many of you ever thought, I'm going to start praying? Like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to pray more. And then a month later said, I'm going to do it. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to start praying. You can't just force it. I love Mimi more than I love you. (laughs) But I love Jesus the most. And so as his pastor, I was proud. But as his father, I was crushed. I was like, yeah, little buddy, I love your sisters more than you. All right? (laughs) Take that. I didn't say that. My wife is here. But here's why. Let me, let me tell you why my son says that. He, he says that because Mimi will feed him sugar for breakfast and have no expectation. She is incapable of saying no to them. And, and here's the thing. I'm nervous right now. I don't know about you guys. <laughs> I feel like at any moment I'm going to get shot, right? On, you know. Probably cross the line with that one. Um, hey, there's noise. All right, we're going to go back and start over. For, no, I'm just kidding. Here's why. Uh, he, let, me, let me tell you why my, I already said why my son would say that, didn't I? Yeah. Yeah, because Mimi feeds sugar for breakfast and capable of saying no. And here's the reality. My, my son is a living mirror. He's a living mirror to the default mode of our hearts because at our core, at our core, we, we all want God to be more like the grandparent than a father. We all want God who will give us whatever we want and have no expectations of us. And that's not the God of the Bible. That's not the God of the Bible. Let's keep reading. Verse 16. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. This is a direct quote out of Leviticus 19. Leviticus is a book in the Old Testament. The Old Testament are the scriptures that came before Jesus. And inside this, uh, this book, it's, it's about uh, the law, about a moral standard. And if you trace the Old Testament, you trace the story of the Bible, uh, here's what you're not going to find. You're not going to find people who regularly and consistently live up to the law. You're going to find a story of one failure after another until Jesus came along. And so here's what I expected to see. When I was studying this, when I'm looking into this little phrase, you shall be holy for I am holy, here's what I expected to see. I expected to see shall be as an imperative, right? I expected it to read as, hey, um, you must be holy for I am holy, right? Jesus did it. He lived up to it. You go put on your WWJD bracelet and go do it like him. That's what I expected to see, and I didn't see that. You know what I saw? I saw an indicative. You know what that means? That means this text isn't saying you go and do holy. It's you that you will be holy. And holiness is a state of being. It's not an activity that you do. It's a state of being, not an activity that you do. And so throughout our series, we've been saying, that God is saying to us, my holiness will be your holiness. My holiness is 
your holiness. And so we've been saying that that holiness is becoming who you are. Becoming who you are. But in the context of 1 Peter, especially in light of verse 13, he's taking it a step farther. And he's saying holiness today is becoming who you will be at the return of Christ. Why does hope impact holiness? Because our obedience to Jesus today is us becoming who who we will be at the return of Christ. And so if I know this and you know this, why is it so dang difficult? Verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout your time of exile. I I think the answer to why is it so difficult is found in one word, and it's in verse 17, and it's the word fear. I think most of us, I think most of us fear what people think of us much more than what God does. I think most of us in this room fear what people think of us more than what God does. And I've I've told you guys this story before, but uh, a few years ago, if you're new, uh, I was at a church in Dallas, and my boss up there sat me down and said, hey, man, you're going to counseling. And I was like, hey, buddy, that's cool. I don't want to go to counseling. I don't think I need it, but I appreciate your help. And he said, no, man, you're, you're going to counseling. And here's the deal, Brandon. There's this wound in you, and I can't figure out what it is. I can't get my thumb on it. And so we're going to send you to an expert who really can. And so my first session with him, he's like, hey, man, are you, uh, are, are, are you insecure? And I was like, buddy, let me tell you, I'm a lot of things, but I'm not insecure. That's, uh, that's not one of them. All right, I've got flaws. That ain't one. And then he sent me out with this assignment. And his assignment was this. Go, go and find six, eight, ten people. Write down these words and say, hey, do you think of me as this? Do you think of me as this? Do you think of me as this? Most humbling exercise I've ever been through. And then I went back to him, and I sat down on that couch, and I couldn't wait to get there. I sped. I broke the law to get to his office so that I could sit down and I could say, hey, John, I'm insecure. I'm insecure. I, I care mountains what people think of me. I just act like I don't. And what was sitting underneath it was this. I had much more reverence for what you thought than what God thought. My fear was placed in people, not in God. And there's two kinds of fear. Fear of God, fear of man. Fear of God will lead you to be known. Fear of man will lead you to hide. And listen to me, you can hide in plain sight. And this matters because of the word exile. If you look up the word exile in a dictionary, biblical dictionary, you're going to find two definitions. This is really fun. Uh, One definition, the first one is going to be the word sojourn or a sojourner, a people of exile. And then the second definition, when it's this word exile that Peter uses applied to a Christian Christian group back in the day, the second word was perish. So do you want to know what our neighborhood parishes are? They are communities of exiles preparing one another for the return of Christ. It's why we say a parish is not an event. A parish is a people 
we, we do events at Sojourn. We're not opposed to events. We're not anti-event. We Vision Sunday, I'm going to walk down the stairs today. I'm going to talk to you guys about who we are and what it is that we're dreaming happens here at Sojourn Heights and then in Sojourn Houston. That's an event. We're not anti-event. But a parish is not an event. A parish is a people. And you have a meal. We come together on Wednesdays or on Tuesdays or on Sundays or on you name the other day, and we meet together, but that's a gathering of people. A parish is a people, a people who are a community of exiles preparing one another for the return of Christ. And if, and if, if we come together and we hide ourselves from one another, we are not cultivating hope in one another. We're not cultivating the kind of hope in one another that leads to holiness. We're fostering hiding. And let me tell you why I talk about this over and over and over. I've been your pastor for 15 months. And there are so many things that the Lord has been unbelievably gracious to us at Sojourn Heights about. But I think we do an exceptional job of hiding in plain sight. And I know that's not everybody. I know there are some of you in this room who are saying, man, that's not me. Man, I, like, my life is bare before one another, and God has been unbelievably gracious to you, and that is true. But there are still far too many of us who do an incredible job of hiding in plain sight. When a fear of man is governing your life, it will always lead to hiding. And if hope and the return of Christ never governs, it will never lead to holiness. And so where is it safe? Where is it safe then? Why is it safe to say, this is who I really am? And listen to me. Let me, let me say this also. I, I know it's difficult. I, I know that it's difficult. Last Wednesday night, my parish gathers together. At the end of the night, we break off men and women. And we do the, how are you? Let's talk. I, I had two things I wanted to say, and I only said one of them. And the whole time we're sitting there, I had to, when we started to pray for one another, when I had to say, stop guys, listen, I, I've got to, I've got to, there's one other thing I've got to tell you about. And, and here's why I didn't want to say it, because it felt embarrassing. It felt embarrassing to say. It felt like, I, I shouldn't, this shouldn't be a problem for me. I didn't want to say it. But that would have been hiding in plain sight. And that would have fostered fear of man in me, not fear of God, not cultivating hope, that leads to holiness. So where is it safe to say this is who I really am? Verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spots, or blemish. Here's what has to happen for you to be able to say, this is who I really am. You have to know that you've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. 
You have to know. It has to grip you. It has to captivate you. Like your soul. I don't mean showing up here. I mean in the deepest parts of your soul. It has to grip you that you have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Because in the cross, in the cross, here's what happened. Fear and hope collide. Fear and hope collide in the cross. These two enemies that don't belong together come together. And they come together because woven throughout the Old Testament is this spotless lamb who receives the wrath of God for the people. And Jesus was that lamb who received the wrath that we deserve so that our fear, our fear of the presence of God becomes hope. We, we don't fear God's judgment because Jesus received our judgment. So now we can hope in God's presence. And this is utterly unique to Christianity. Utterly unique to Christianity. Every other world religion will say this. Everyone. You track it down, you get to it at its core, it's going to say this. That you have to hope that you've done enough good that you don't have to fear being in God's presence. Only Christianity says, "Uh uh-uh. No. It is absolutely by grace. Because of what Jesus has done for you, your fear can become hope. You have to fear what God thinks of you. You know what he does. You can look to Christ. And so where is it safe to say, this is who I am? It's safe to say it in the cross, at the cross. Because in the cross, Jesus died for the real you. He didn't die for you that's hiding in plain sight. He died for the real you. He died so that the real you could be changed. The real you could become more like Christ so that the real you could hope that leads to holiness. The real you is who he died for. Which means, which means that we have the freedom now to live an examined life. In verse 18 he said that you've been ransomed from, redeemed from futile ways inherited from your forefathers. You know what this is? This futile ways inherited from your forefathers? It's the unexamined life. It's, why, why do I do this? My parents did it. Why do I believe this? Because I'm American. Why do I believe this? Because I'm African. Why do I believe this? Because I'm Asian. That's the unexamined life. And in Christ, now we can take all of our life and we can hold it up and we're free to examine it. Because, because, and let me tell you why, that this cannot be missed in the text. This cannot be missed because no one drifts into holiness. No one, no one drifts into holiness. This is the paradox of holiness. It can't be forced, but it doesn't just happen. Is it God or me? Yes. Am I passive? At- yes. Can't be forced, but doesn't just happen. It requires constant and consistent self-examination in the light of grace. So how then can I examine my life? How then can I live and lead an examined life? Let me give you a couple of ways. First, stop lying to yourself about you. Stop lying to yourself about you. Listen, no one in this room can deceive yourself better than you can. Stop lying to yourself about you. And and if lying feels like a harsh word, it's meant to be. Because that's what it is. 
It's meant to be an honest word. Second way, stop lying to community. Stop lying to the people around you about you. Maybe be willing to say, I know what Jesus has done for me and and I want you to know who I really am because I want to be more like him. And I can't do it if I keep pretending. What if you would open yourself up to community? And then the third way, open the scriptures and let the scriptures expose yourself to you. Listen to me. Let me tell you the beauty of the Bible. It will expose your heart better than your spouse can. Open yourself up to the Scriptures and let the Scriptures expose yourself to you because the more you know yourself, the more you know yourself, the more hope can be transferred from yourself to Christ. Because the only person in here, so the, the only person in here that still believes that adage, if I just put my mind to it, I can do anything, is a person living in self-denial is a person who doesn't know himself or herself. The more you know yourself, the more eager you are to transfer your hope from you to Christ. And as that hope gets transferred from yourself to him, it changes the way you see today. Verse 20 and 21. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised God from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Let me tell you what happens when hope impacts holiness. It leads to an eternal perspective on today. That the one that he said hope in, hope in the revelation, the appearing, the return of Christ is the one, he says, that created the world. It's the one who um, was known before the world that was made manifest in the last times. The one who pre-existed, existed before the world is the one who is returning. And so I want you to picture a timeline from before the world existed to this day that we don't know when it's going to happen. And I want you to look at the patience of God in that. I, I want you to picture a timeline before the world ever existed One day Christ is going to return. I want you to see that as the plan of redemption. And I want you to know that God is patient in the plan of redemption. And if God is patient in the plan of redemption, God is patient with you. There are some of you in here. There's some of you in here who have so self-condemned yourself, who are sitting here thinking, Why can I not just get over it? Why do I keep doing what I don't want to do? You know who else said that? Paul, Romans. God is patient in the plan of redemption. And so you gripped sinner in this room. You broken man or woman like me. You need to hear this. God is patient. He has an eternal perspective with the world and he has an eternal perspective with your life. God is patient. Your marriage is falling apart. God is patient. 
And some of you, some of you, you need this eternal perspective on your life today. Now, you, you don't need it tomorrow. You don't need it next week. You don't need it next month. You need this eternal perspective on your life today, right now, that when you look at your life, you think, you need it today. And the rest of you, you're going to need it one day. Because in one day, you know what those kids are going to need one day? One day, that sojourn kid's wing over there, they're going to need this eternal perspective because one day it's going to be your turn for the call of cancer. One day, you're going to show up at a hospital and you're never going to leave. One day, some of you are going to wake up and you're going to be 55 and you're still going to be single. And in that day, if you don't have an eternal perspective on your life, it's going to lead to bitterness. It's going to lead to anger. And it's going to lead you to shake your fist at God. But if you've been gripped by an eternal perspective, if you have this eternal perspective on your life, if you can look at your life and say, I am in Christ and Christ is in me and the governing hope of my life is not today. It's the day when I'm in the presence of Jesus. It'll lead to worship. and It'll lead to holiness. Because hope impacts holiness. So here's what Stan Van Hooft knew. He knew one other thing. He, he knew that hope is the heartbeat of humanity. And that for us to live today, we have to hope in a better day. We have to hope in the day that Christ would return. And if that is the governing hope of your life, if that is the hope that governs all other hopes in you, that hope will lead to holiness. Let's pray.